Hello friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. We're in the short bonus season, a reworking of a series of video talks I gave quite a few years ago called A Guide to Preaching, originally intended for a group of training pastors and evangelists, but now just making it available during this this, uh, gap phase between the close of our season together, working through the book of Leviticus, and our next major season together, which is going to be the Gospel of Luke. In order to give me a couple of weeks preparation time, I'm just uploading this as bonus content. The sound quality won't be as good as the normal podcasts, perhaps, but that's of course because they were recorded on a laptop video camera. Anyway, I hope you're finding them helpful, and we'll be back in less than a week to pick up where we left off last time in our journey together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But for now, this is part seven in my series on a guide to preaching and talking about preparing messages that hold people's attention. Bye-bye for now, and I'll see you at the end. episode in this session we're going to think about messages that keep people's attention having a message that can be stated in a single sentence and having a definite purpose as well as an appropriate outline prepared should produce a clear message but clear messages are not always necessarily effective messages clear messages can still bore people they can uh, literally put people to sleep Effective messages contain materials that are not only clear, but that hold people's attention. The development of an outline of a message, like I said previously, is like a skeleton. A skeleton gives a clear framework, but on its own, it's still uninteresting. So we need to put flesh in the bones to make the message effective. In terms of message, Flesh must be added to the skeleton. In other words, after a point is stated and the outline is followed, the speaker must use additional material to effectively communicate the actual basic points that he's making to the audience or the congregation. Now, sometimes in textbooks, this add-on material, this fleshing out of the core message is sometimes called the supporting material. In other words, it's resources, things that you use and add to add flesh to the main message. Now, one of the most basic but useful things you can use as an add-on to the bare bones of your message is quite simply an explanation of what you're saying as you go along. One of the most basic things but most important things a speaker can do is to support the points he's making by explaining them. If the congregation does not understand the message or the points, then they're going to need more explanation. And without that explanation, the message just will not be effective. Explanation might include the definition of terms you've used or the discussion of those terms or ideas. Sometimes comparisons or contrasts are are useful or just unpacking the significance of the subject, the implications of the point you're making or the topic in hand, and also the consequences of the issues if that point isn't followed, and the relationship of this idea that you're making, the point you're making, to maybe another point. 
For example, in preaching on John 3, which we've referred to a few times, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, explaining the, the new birth would, of course, be appropriate, and that would be the main core, the basic framework of what you're going to say. But it would also be essential to clearly proclaim the message of the passage, which is our first birth is physical and our second birth is spiritual, the idea of being born again. Now, in explaining things and offering explanations, the first rule, really, in using an explanation is to keep it simple and short. A very often repeated phrase is the story about the wife of the speaker who passed her note to her husband before he was about to speak, and it read, Kiss, and he thought he was getting a loving send-off to the platform, but he later learned that the note was her reminder to him to keep it simple, stupid. But it also can mean, of course, keep it short. The second rule, I believe, that is whatever you're speaking about, you need to have authority. You need to know it well. Before you get in the pulpit, you ought to be able to explain the main framework, the main points of anything you're going to say. I would say you've got to be able to explain it to another person in a private conversation without notes. You're not ready to explain something publicly at length if you can't summarize it in a private conversation with a friend without having to refer to notes. If you really want an acid test of whether you can explain something or not, try explaining it to a teenager or a young person and see if they understand it. As a rule, teenagers, if they don't get something, they will tell you. The other way to add flesh to the bones of your message is to include some factual information. The most effective messages consist of carefully added on chosen facts. These can often indeed be great incentives to action in the eyes and ears of the listener. And incitement to activity, the call to adventure, is an extremely difficult thing to do. When it's effectively done, it's usually grounded with supporting facts, not just the emotional call or theological principle of the message. Therefore, whatever we say should be sprinkled with factual information, corroborating information. Now, don't mistake a fact for something that's only a matter of opinion. According to the dictionary, a fact is something that has external evidence existent to support the key statement. Facts, in a sense, are data that can be identified independently from the speaker, the person who's saying it. There are different types of facts. Facts can consist of observations by other experts in the field, examples, statistics, of course. These can be very compelling if using them to back up what we're saying. But if you're using statistics, be careful that you quote them accurately. Unless the figure is over like four figures, it wouldn't be acceptable to round up or down. But example, if you're saying that someone from history lived in, and you know it was 1389, you might say about 1400, just so that that information slips into the mind more easily. But remember, figures by themselves tend to be cold and uninteresting to people. So if using figures or statistics to create a comparison or to back up a point, it's also helpful to relate those figures to the experience or explain why they're connected to the overall subject matter that you're trying to support. 
And if the figures you use are in any way cause a doubt in your mind, then you need to verify them. Because if they sound or feel doubtful to you, they will also sound and feel doubtful to people listening. So if possible, find a source and date. Now, you don't always need to give it, but if you feel that people might be incredulous or have difficulty believing what you're saying, then just quote the source and the date and the place they can, can find it when you give that statistic. But needless to say, the important point to make is if you're going to use statistics, if you're going to use facts, make sure they are facts. And if you have any doubts, do some research. Use the internet, make sure that source is reliable. Bernard Barak memorably said, every man has a right to his own opinion, but no man has the right to the wrong facts. Quotations are another way to add flesh to the bones of what you're trying to say. We tend to use questions for one of two reasons, to sort of impress, to embed a point we're making, or to give it more authority. Now, if you're not qualified to speak on the subject, if you're introducing a supporting fact and you're clearly not an expert in that, then it's useful to quote an expert. But make sure that expert is someone who is qualified to speak on that subject. And if the authority that you're quoting might be unknown to the audience, then give his or her qualifications to speak on that issue. If someone else has stated more eloquently or effectively what you're trying to say, then just use that person's words. We are able to stand on the shoulders of many, many who have gone before us. And doing all those things will, of course, give what we're saying authority. But I need to underpin this by saying that real authority actually comes from the life that we live as Christians. First Timothy, when talking about elders and leaders, says he must be one who rules his own house well, having children in submission with all relevance. In other words, the elder must live a life where he has been shown to demonstrate that he has reverence. The Greek word translated reverence means uh, venerable. It means that he is someone who is held in high regard. And that's why the family illustrations used about children, because if someone's not able to keep their children in a position where they look up to and respect them as a father or as a parent, then that would be obviously a clear signal that they're not to be taken seriously. Which is why the principle of family is raised here, because obviously someone who has natural authority and is held in respect, you would expect to see that within the family situation as well. So this word has with it a sense of gravity, dignity, and it invites reverence and respect. However, we need to recognise that authority, when called upon or exercised, must be done with dignity and humility. And the idea here is that it should really be, in a sense, a bit like a father's firmness, which would make it advisable for a child to obey. This wisdom should be and this authority that when we speak at the front should be natural one. The sort of the voice of a parent that is listened to out of respect and would make that young person, because of that respect, be very likely to take it on board. The watchword of any serious preacher ought to be that of Jesus himself, which says that for their sake I sanctify myself. In other words... The better the person, the better the preacher. The better the person you can be, 
the more mature Christian you can be in your life, the better and more qualified, the more authority you will have as a preacher. When we stand before a congregation, we should be able to do that with a natural authority. Yes, always with humility, but a natural authority that comes from the lives that we live. And such a character is developed through the hard work of Christian self-denial, Christian patience and resistance to sin and temptation. It is these characteristics that strengthen the soul and give conviction to everything we say. But on the other side of the coin, likewise, every sin, every indulgence of self-centeredness, every compromise we make with evil, every unworthy word, thought or deed, they will accompany us into the pulpit and they will steal both the light from the word and the authority with which we say them. Another useful way to add meat to the bones of what we're trying to say is the use of testimony, personal testimony, other people's testimony. Someone's testimony is a very common method speaker use to back up a point, to buttress it, to secure it. But if you overdo it, it can become ineffective. However, let me say that the use of testimony of someone else, you've got to make sure that that person is qualified in the area that you're drawing the testimony into and that their life overall is a testimony to the grace of God. But before using a testimony, we need to think about whether the person's qualified. Is that person's statement based on first-hand knowledge? Is that person prejudiced? We wouldn't call a celebrity to endorse a product that was totally unrelated to the fields in which they work in. We may want to show diligence or hard work and would call in a sportsman to testify to that, to create that ambience uh, that they would want to associate with their brand. But they wouldn't call that person to give their testimony if it was a scientific or technical project because people looking would see that that had no connection. And the same applies in the church. Make sure that the testimony of the person you're giving, that what they're speaking about, their knowledge or their authority is relevant to the area that you're calling in as testimony. In other words, you've got to ask the question in your mind, will the audience, will the congregation respect what that person says in relation to the point I'm making? A reporter once asked Billy Graham, if you had to live your life over again, would you do anything differently? Graham responded saying yes. And his answer was, I would spend more time studying the Bible. And coming from Billy Graham, that is indeed a powerful testimony. Now, one of the, the most important and most natural ways that we can add on and develop our sermon or our message is through the use of narration or storytelling. When properly done, narration or storytelling can be one of the most effective means of communicating a message because it creates an add-on. It adds on by appealing to the imagination. With simple storytelling, instead of just explaining a point, we create a story that can help engage people's imagination in understanding the application of what we're trying to say. Now, a story will usually have a defined character within it and there is some sort of conflict or issue going on that needs to be resolved. Conflict in drama lies at the heart and essence of every story. 
The simplest way to tell a story is in the order of the standard four parts of story development. Story development usually consists of characters, introducing characters, then introducing a conflict or a struggle. Sometimes it, this is referred to, certainly in movie making, as the lead character's call to adventure. And then adding in some complications that need resolved and then resolving it with a conclusion. In other words, first introduce characters, talk about the conflict, show how that creates a call to action, add some complications to, to flavour it and conclude, hopefully, by resolving the conflict. Take the viewpoint of one character is usually the best way to tell a story or at least show the viewpoint of one character. Develop the plot, if you like, swiftly and accurately. Don't be frightened to use imagination. Even use dialogue. Put words into the character's mouth. If only one person is involved in the story, we see actually Luke in his Gospel account do that on several occasions in chapters 15 and 16. So narration and storytelling can be a really powerful tool for communicating a message, but we need to recognise there are limitations. Narration is not a good way to teach brand new material or new ideas people have never uh, encountered before. But it's best used to illustrate a point that you know they'll understand the basic point and what you want to do is grab people's imagination and demand they become active listeners and try and catch deeper meanings from within the story. Someone once says, give me a fact and I will learn, give me a truth and I will remember. So telling a story will help people not only understand what you said factually, but will help them keep the truth that arises out of those facts and keep it held in their heart and their imagination, maybe forever. Illustrations are often used as well. And in a sense, illustrations are kind of just a type of story, maybe narrating someone else else's events in their life in the form of a story which explain the truth you're trying to illustrate through a comparison in other words the events are similar maybe a modern version of what has been go going on in the bible text that you're trying to illustrate or it perhaps stands in sharp contrast to that which again grabs people's imaginations Illustrations can be a really effective means of communicating or summarising a message. They are powerful. They can render the truth of these 2,000 year plus old texts in the minds and in the lives of the current world in which we live in. They can hold attention. They can also be used at the start of a message as a way of attention grabbing, grabbing the listener's attention, or just simply establishing rapport or humour between the speaker and those who are listening. But illustrations enlighten the mind because they demand an emotional reaction. And once used, illustrations or stories tend to be remembered long after a sermon has ended. But for the use of effective illustrations, I do believe there are a few basic principles we should follow. Firstly, they should be understandable. The point of the illustration is to clarify that which is difficult to understand or maybe make something that was previously unknown known. Therefore, the most understandable illustrations are those that deal with both the experiences both the speaker and the audience at some level have had. The next most likely understandable deals with an experience that at least the speaker 
or the audience has knowledge of. Maybe they haven't had to deal with it, but at least one of the parties involved in telling or listening to the story should at least have knowledge of what is being talked about. The least understandable, and therefore the least useful illustrations, contain material that neither the speaker or the audience maybe know about or neither of them have experienced. But also an illustration should be believable. For something to be convincing, it has to be believable. If at any level an illustration or a story strikes an audience as unbelievable, it will affect the speaker's credibility. Now, this more applies to illustrations and stories, because sometimes stories, by their nature, are not factually based, but they're there to make a point. But when an illustration has been used, you're usually calling on the events in someone else's life to make a point and retelling it as the story of what happened to them. So it needs to be believable. If it strikes the audience in any way as being incredible, it will affect your credibility as a speaker. And also, of course, they need to be relevant. Any illustrations you're drawing upon must be pertinent to the point you're trying to make. Do not use an illustration for the sake of just having an illustration. If you're going to use an illustration, it must be relevant. If it's not re relevant to the point, it shall actually have the impact of actually detracting from the point you're trying to make. And of course, finally, illustrations should at least be interesting. They must have some sort of interest value. So avoid illustrations that are too so familiar that they don't actually strike anybody as original or unusual and keep them pertinent. Leave out unnecessary words. Many people believe that Jesus was the greatest public speaker who ever lived. And most people acknowledge that he was, well, let me say, particularly effective when he spoke in parallels. So it seems that the greatest sp speaker who ever lived is well known for telling stories. So as I said, when you speak, and if you want to draw on a story or make an illustration, you're being Christ-like. To tell a story, to speak and elaborate on what you're trying to say by telling stories is in fact a very Christ-like thing to do. Now Jesus Christ, at that time in his day, he chose his stories from nature, agriculture, current events, personal experience, the religious world around him, the political world around him, even the business world and social customs, household customs. He talked about family relationships and the human bodies. All of these were used to draw out and create stories. And he used them to answer questions. He used them also to introduce messages. He used them to explain the concept that he was trying to teach. He used them to illustrate a truth. He also used them to hide a truth and to conclude a message. For most speakers, the biggest difficulty in using illustrations is to find them. To find illustrations, I recommend you first look at your own experiences or the experiences of other people. I once had someone come to me after I'd been in a church for a few years preaching and they said, are you ever going to run out of illustrations from all the naughty things that you did as a child? I'll leave that where it is. But look to your own life. Look in books, booklets, magazine, newspapers. I particularly find the magazine supplements that accompany the papers that appear at the weekends here in the UK particularly useful. 
Google, find whatever you can, and if it's appropriate, use it. Spurgeon said, all originality without plagiarism makes for very dull preaching. I don't think he literally means to plagiarise. He means to call in the resources of other people's stories and experiences. And if all else fails, make up a parable. Jesus told parables, which is nothing more than creating a hypothetical story. Make sure you frame it so you know that people know that it's hypothetical and you're not accused of creating a falsehood, but perfectly acceptable to create a story that is unique to your own imagination. So let me just summarise here about how we can go from having clearly constructed messages with a good outline to effective messages that keep people's attention. And we've done that by using and suggesting various ways and materials to pull in to support the points we want to make in our message. There are many ways to support a point. There are many other ways to support a point or to add flesh to the bone of what we're doing. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to summarise by giving you a list of all the things that we've discussed, as well as some other minor things that I think can all be drawn upon to help us communicate the Christian message more effectively. They are worth keeping in mind when performing a message. There are 15 things here, and I actually keep a list of these 15 things to hand on a piece of paper and an entry on my desk which are ways in which I can, uh, sometimes if I'm struggling, I can add flesh to the bones of a sermon I'm trying to create. So I'll just give you those 15 things are. They are definitions. In other words, you can expand what a word means. Explanations are you can go beyond expanding what the individual word means and you can think about trying to explain what the concept you're discussing means. Factual information. What facts can you draw upon to support your ideas or use in as a tension grabber? Quotations. Consider go looking for quotations which can confirm authority on what you're saying. Also testimonies. In other words, look for people who have experienced these events or who have experienced this truth, the application of this truth in their life. Narration. Storytelling, is there any way you can dramatise the events of what you're saying, either through the story of someone else or something that has happened in your life? Illustration, where you take a story and you illustrate it in a way that communicates that truth. You bring something independently in from either yourself or from someone other's life that illustrates the truth that you're trying to make. Applications. They're very useful. What you should do because of what says. And then alongside that, number nine is reasons why you should do what I'm saying. And you can actually add on two ways of dividing out even further. You can look at the gains, what you'll gain if you do this. And you can also then ask people to consider the losses. What way will lose out in life or in their Christian faith, or in their development of Christian maturity, if they don't do these things. You might also consider, when wrapping up, excuses why people don't do these things and apply these things in their life. Because there will be people sitting in front of you who will be hearing what you say, believing what you say, accepting what you say, but thinking, wow, I'm personally, I'm not doing this. And maybe the reasons why people don't do it will resonate with them and enable them to take action 
in addressing it. Sometimes the use of opposites is also useful. You can actually draw people's attention to what the opposite of what you're saying might mean. And that engages the brain at a very deep level to actually think and to have a conversation within themselves about what this truly means. And alongside opposites, you can use alternatives. What you could or might do beside what the text is suggesting and what implications that might have for the life of the listener. And finally, humour. Humour is a great way to engage people, but also to embed an idea. And I find actually, interestingly, sometimes the more absurd, the more surreal the humour, the more it engages the creative part of people's thinking and the more memorable the point can be to sit within their mind. But of course, you have to be very careful that it isn't so absurd that it ends up just causing confusion. So if we go back to the analogy I used at the close of the last question, we said the outline, the template, the bare bones of the message is the skeleton of what you're going to say. But a skeleton without flesh is dead. To keep people's interest, there must be more to look at than the bare bones of a list of ideas or facts. And what we've been talking about today is all the ways we can add supporting concepts, supporting material to put flesh on the bones, to bring insights, to breathe life into the words, to breathe life into the body and into the bodies of those people sitting in front of you so that you can not only draw people's attention, you can not only capture people's imagination, but that you can call them into action as well. Okay, and we're going to look at that process next time. We're going to look at how we can try and make sure that our messages actually call people to action. The call to adventure, they call it in the movie industry. Actions that actually cause people's feet to start moving and living and walking in the direction of the Lord in the life of faith. I'll see you next time. I do hope you're finding this series helpful, particularly if you feel you've been called to teach or to preach or even to lead small groups in Bible studies. Don't forget, there's always an episode notes page of every single episode and when we're in the main seasons, there is in fact a full transcript of what I've said. There's no transcript available for this short bonus series, but you can buy a copy of the book upon which it is based if you follow the link to my author page in the episode notes. So with that said, I'll just say bye-bye for now. Remember, there are lots of ways that you can uh, reach out and connect with this ministry by following the link to where it's hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. And if you are finding it helpful, why not click on the subscribe button and that way you'll never miss another single episode. And also perhaps even consider sharing it or liking it so other people can find it. Anyway, thanks again for being here, and I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Bye-bye for now.